There's something better. Go ahead. Try. Welcome back to episode three of the Spectacular Radio. I am Zach Joyner, and I am joined once again by Mr. Greg Bishansky. Greg? Hi. And who else are we joined by? Oh, a special treat once again. Jennifer L. Anderson, the talent coordinator of, of season two and the post-production assistant of season one, and the series supervising producer and story editor and one of its writers, Mr. Greg Wiseman. Oh. Hello. Is and, episode um, here, episode two. Oh, it's episode two, but we did we were doing a fan section in between where the where but we're a, group, a, a small panel of fans discusses the episode, so it's uh technically episode three you're doing that, odd numbered episodes. Yeah. Cool. We're odd yes. as usual, Greg. Yes, we're <laughs> yes. we're always odd. I mean I, I feel weird. That. <laughs> I feel weird on the even episodes. I've never been an even person. <laughs> yeah, you definitely aren't an even person. Never. <laughs> but an, but anyway, before we talk about the episode, since we're all nerds, I thought I would ask, what did everybody here think of Captain America the Winter Soldier? Bucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was I awesome. love Bucky. Okay, sorry. <laughs> You a fan of Bucky Cap there, Jen? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, Bucky Cap. I, every time Bucky had the shield, I was squeeing. Every time they he was holding it, I was, like, squeeing like a little fangirl that I am. Well, Chris Evans says he's going to retire from acting after his obligations playing Captain America are done, so you never know. They might make Bucky the new Captain America once that happens. I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> and, Greg, what did you think of it? Uh, I thought it was great. I really did. I'm not sure the title works, honestly. Um, you know, the, the uh, Bucky's great, Winter Soldier's great, but that's not what the movie was really about to me. So the thing that actually thr- throws me the most is the title. But uh, the movie itself, I just I loved. I just it, it's a great ride. Great characters from beginning to end. Black. Widow is fantastic and should have her own movie. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think everybody and, thinks that now. And the one thing uh, I, I did not at all worry about it during the film, but I walked out of the movie and I said, um, where was Hawkeye? Uh, we were all saying that. So, And I feel like there are so many Easter eggs in that movie that maybe I missed the Hawkeye Easter egg. But uh, then I got online, and as far as I can tell, there was no Hawkeye Easter egg. And and it seemed like it would have been really easy to sort of just indicate that, you know, he was in uh, Prague or he was, you know, one of the people targeted by the lasers or something, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but uh, I, I did really make me wonder, you know, uh, what the deal was with him. And of course, when I said that to my wife, who's not a geek, she 
her response was, well, you could say, where's Thor? Where's Iron Man? I'm like, nah, it's not really the same. Not, you know, the way Avengers was set up, you know, you don't necessarily expect um, Thor or Iron Man or Hulk to be part of this, but Hawkeye was clearly an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, yeah. And uh, so I, I'm kind of wondering where Hawkeye stands now. I think the only nod we got to anything Hawkeye-esque was uh, Black Widow's necklace, which was a tiny arrow. Yeah, yeah. I were told her, yeah we were told where Tony was anyway. He was targeted. Mm-hmm. And I, I really liked the movie. I was surprised that Robert Redford was not Red Skull. I was expecting him to pull off his face near the I end. I totally but, was. The whole time I was expecting him to pull off his face and be Red Skull under there. Yeah, yeah me too. I was... That never uh, yeah. crossed my mind. I assume Red Skull's like some Asgardian universe or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, we got Baron Strucker in the uh, end credits, so we'll see what happens there. I think at this point, Zemo and Madame Hydra are the last major Cap villains to appear in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Well, it's it, it's been a long time since we had a good villain with a monocle, so I'm really happy <laughs> to see him join us. Hail <laughs> Hydra. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Monocle. <laughs> yeah. Of course, that Hell Hydra meme now has been beat to death. I know, I'm one of the worst defenders. Yeah, you are. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what Titania whispered to Fox, isn't it, Greg? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I had to bring it up, Greg, I'm sorry. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> but anyway, I thought it was great, and I guess on that note, it's a little, since you... I know you couldn't use these characters, but you said he had a bigger Marvel universe in mind anyway. Is was Hydra at all active in the Spec Spider universe? Well, in the sense that Hydra had been active for decades, then I suppose the answer is yes. We didn't have any specific plans for Hydra. I think that uh you know, down the road I had some thoughts about um Nick Fury and once you bring Shield in then Hydra's not far behind. But you know, we definitely had plans for Captain America. Uh, the idea was that um, the whole idea, what we would eventually establish is that in the attic, Uncle Ben had this whole Captain America collection. And uh, and so down the road, and it wouldn't have been soon because as far as we were concerned, Captain America was still frozen in ice during the first uh, few seasons of Spidey. Um because, again, it was sort of 1962, 63, reborn as 2008, 2009. Um, but uh, eventually, when Cap showed up, you know, what we'd learn is that via Uncle Ben, in a sense, you know, um, Pete's inspiration for putting on the costume in the first place was really Captain America. I love um, The whole idea of putting on a super suit comes as far as Pete's concerned because Uncle Ben was such a big, huge Captain America fan. So it was sort of like, okay, I'm I'm Captain Spider, you know, and, and we might even have had him say, I was that was my first thought for the name was Captain Spider and Captain <laughs> That's awesome. It doesn't roll you off the tongue though, but I love that. Yeah. I, I think there actually was a comic that they did something similar with Ben having old comic books and Captain America was brought up. So that's really cool that you would, you would have brought that element even, yeah, into the into the show. That's cool. But, I mean, you know, all that's with a huge grain of salt. It's not only about, hey, that means 
that we'd have been around for more seasons, but it also means that, um, you know, Marvel and Sony finally agreed to allow us to use those additional characters. Where we stood during the two seasons that we did do is that those characters were all off limits. So we had ideas for what we would do with um, other characters. Um, the most fleshed out ones were for uh, uh, Human Torch um, and Kingpin, but uh, but you know we weren't allowed to even do Kingpin, even though Kingpin's first appearance was in Spider-Man. Yeah, because at the time he was considered part of the. Uh, a license for uh, Daredevil, and uh, you know, I'm sort of mystified that they're able to do Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch in both the X-Men movies yeah. and yeah. Uh-huh. the uh, Marvel Universe movies because my understanding from those years was that every single character was assigned to one license or another, and so the fact that Marvel's not objecting. If Marvel feels they've got the rights to Quicksilver and and Scarlet Witch, I'm surprised they're not objecting to Fox using them in the X-Men movies and vice versa. And I think part of it must be that, for whatever reason, Marvel has a better relationship with people at Fox than they did at the time with uh, the people at Sony because it seemed to me like... Uh, Sony and Marvel were always kind of fighting. Always. Mm-hmm. Well, and hey, kudos to Marvel, Marvel for getting Quicksilver onto the screen before Fox could <laughs> yeah. by a few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You think that was kind of purpose? Like, like they're like, oh yeah, we have to do an after credit scene anyway, so let's just go ahead and introduce these characters. I think, I think there was some, uh, there was some coordination there. It seems like to me, at least. Maybe I'm wrong, but. Yeah. Yes. I think I, I think uh, the Marvel Quicksilver looks better than the Fox Quicksilver. Oh yeah, personally. me too. But anyway, that's just me. Anyway, interaction, spectacular Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, enough of. Okay, you brought in Electro, and he's been in most adaptations before, and I like your take on him. But one thing that I've noticed that there's never really been a straight up adaption of the comic book version of Electro that was that same petty thug in the weird costume. I mean, the 90s show made the made Electro the Red Skull's son and a Nazi terrorist. In an episode starring Captain America, so that segues back to our previous discussion. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it all but, um, Yeah, so, um, how did you approach Electro when you sat down to adapt him? Well, uh, to a certain extent, um, a, a, a part of it had to do with where we were placing Electro in our arc. Um, so he was part of the biology arc, which suggested to us that his origin should be more biological in nature than, um, you know, say, you know, Doc Ock or, uh, the origin for some of the characters that followed. Um, and uh, that may be part of it. I think that, uh, um, you know, we just wanted something that uh, felt like it had an organic sense to it, that, you know, uh, that it didn't seem to be coming from complete left field and 
Um, you know, we didn't want there to be thousands of sources of technology. Um, we wanted that to be more contained, which is one of the reasons that in episodes that we'll be talking about down the road, you know, you don't have, uh, you know, as many sources of tech or powers, maybe even a better phrase for it, sources of superpowers as there are villains. You know, in other words, we had many of our villains come out of the whole Oscorp, um, Big Man Alliance, um, and even there we tried to develop the notions, you know, the ideas behind the, the tech, even if it was um, superpowers gone wrong kind of thing. We tried to develop it out of a more cohesive, coherent thing. So in this case, we were going with Connor's lab, and so that sort of advanced um, using, in essence, the same sort of biogenetic um, origin that the lizard had, that Spider-Man himself had in our version, um, where we sort of followed suit with the movie um, that came before us. Um, we made Electro part and parcel of that, source of superpower, that source of tech, and made use of electric eels, which, you know, for me is an old standby. Um, <laughs> I we used remember. The garbage stuff, but, uh, you know, it, it just felt um, right, and that's what it comes down to. As for the visuals of it, and the old suit, we tried to, in essence, create a version, an iconic version of Electro without the sort of silly face mask. In other words, that sort of starfish shape to the mask we tried to um, emulate through the electricity itself as opposed to just having this sort of starfish lightning bolts flying off his face as part of his mask. We were like, no, we're actually going to do electricity that's coming off in that shape so that he still felt like an iconic classic electro look but it was more contemporary sort of less of a goofy uh costume kind of thing and that the the suit he's wearing is actually a containment suit to hold his electricity in and the, instead of the mask what we have is his actual you know power radiating off his face and that just, again, all felt right to us. And, of course, with um, Sean Galloway, just was able to bring that to life and um, do great stuff with it. And then Kristen Freeman, obviously fantastic, is Max slash Electro. Yeah, on that note, I believe it was Jen who hooked you up with Crispin Freeman. Yeah, I forced uh, Crispin on Greg. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, Jen introduced me to Crispin uh, back in... Uh, 2001? In, yeah, something like that. Uh, yeah, at the gathering in 2001. But Crispin and I, I don't think... Uh, I think uh, Crispin and I had worked together briefly on Witch. Um, and certainly that it was Jen's introduction. That's how I met Crispin and why he got the part in Witch, but uh, I feel like Crispin probably auditioned for us um, uh, for Spider-Man um, and didn't uh, obviously get the role of Spider-Man, but impressed us 
and not just me, but Jamie Thomas and our voice director and everyone else. So that when, you know, um, we suggested him for a lecture, everyone was like, yeah, that sounds great kind of thing. Yeah. I've, I've been a Crispin Freeman fan since, uh, he was doing anime dubs and, uh, decided that there was no way this guy should just be doing anime dubs and introduced him to anyone and everyone that I possibly could, uh, uh, in the industry. Um, and, uh, thankfully, uh, his talent got him some pretty amazing roles and now he's working all the time. Yeah, nice. he's busy. Um, you know, and obviously he played multiple roles for us on Young Justice as well. Um, you know, he's great. It's really great at sounding angry also. Every character he played on Young Justice was pissed off. <laughs> he's the angry whoopee. <laughs> I will see a lecture we'll be in in a bit, but, um, so Jen, how did you meet him? How did I meet Crispin? Um, yeah. the internet, um, I, like, like you met everybody else. Yeah, so. seriously. <laughs> I'm such a nerd. No, um, he, uh, there, I think there was like a, um, mutual Yahoo group that we were on, but we, I was a fan of his voice work and we had, got to talking animation and our roots of animation and it got to, you know, gotcha on and battle of the planets uh, and stuff and um, Robotech. And we went off on this big conversation about old school anime. And I was like, this guy's gotta be, you know, he's as big as nerd as I am. So we got to talking like that and uh, the conversations just went on and on. And eventually, uh, um, I was also friends with the girl that would become his future wife, um, but I didn't even know that they were dating at the time. Uh, and um, he came out to visit, and we all got together and went to medieval times, because that's what nerds do. That's awesome, yeah. <laughs> but that was the first time I met him in person. He's a great guy, extremely smart, um, loves to learn, loves to teach. Uh, and if you ever get a chance to take one of his voice acting classes, highly recommend. Excellent, excellent. He's a, he's a great teacher. Yeah, I attended one of his panels once, his mythology and animation panel, back when the gathering was still a thing, and it was a lot of fun. Very, very bright man. And uh, now for a bit of a pedantic question, because a friend of mine was wondering, how does Electro eat? <laughs> I like this question. It's made me laugh. Everything's microwaved. Well, I, I think I think the basic thing is is that uh, what we try to imply over time is that he had to, in essence, train himself. You know, in other words, to hold back his electricity, allow him to eat and drink, um, and uh, over time he managed to uh, control it to a certain degree. Um, his problem is is that he's constantly generating this stuff. Um, and the containment suit allows him to uh, hold on to it. Um, but, you know, the, the trick is can he shut, off, shut it off or shut it or lower the, you know, the voltage for long enough to do things like eat and drink, et cetera. Get a um, freaking cup of coffee. Right. I love so, you know, uh, the idea Absolutely. for all the characters is that 
they had certain vulnerabilities, kryptonites, if you will. I mean, the villains. But, uh, you know, what we wanted to show is that, you know, Spider-Man was never going to be able to beat these guys the same way twice. Um, and uh, so some of his problems got fixed. And, in fact, probably more would have been fixed if, if Max hadn't been sort of so emotionally destabilized by what went on. Um, that if he had uh, been able to stay a little more lucid and a little less uh, reactive, uh, he probably could have controlled it even more than he did. Um, but, you know, his own sort of madness, in essence, gets in the way of him um, leading an even more normal life than anybody he might have been able to lead if he had uh, not kind of gone nuts. That, that being a clinical term, going nuts. But very um, clinical. Well, he has that one line that he wanted to go back to school, meet someone, and have a life. Well, he met Otto and made a life with him. Yeah, he definitely sort of latches on to uh, Otto. And they uh, make such a cute couple. Hey, Greg, is he the gay character on this show? You have one in every show. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, I never thought of it that way, really. I think of it as a more... Uh, he looks at him as more of a father figure. Um, but, yeah, maybe. Who knows? I don't know. I'm not opposed to them. Um, yeah. Well, there was I, a, I, don't think, yeah. I don't think that, that relationship is, but... Um, it doesn't mean that Electro isn't gay. Yeah, there was that scene in a Mar- in Marvel Knights where he goes to a uh, su- this brothel of shapeshifters, and this shapeshifters turning into all these different superheroines, and who do you want for the night? And Electro says, well, I learned a new side of myself in prison, and then the scene gets <laughs> cut off. But Are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm not kidding you. I'm not. It's like they let me write it. I'll send you the scans oh. later. Okay. <laughs> and speaking of Electro, while the movie isn't out yet, based on the previews, they seem to be adapting a lot of your Electro. I mean, the mutated electric eels are seen in the trailer. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm always hesitant to sort of say, hey, look, it's our show. Um, because, you know, we're all working off of the same source material. And just because they came up with the same idea doesn't mean they got it from us. They could have come up with it via the same process we came up with it. But, you know, there's something validating, even if that's the case, there's something validating about the notion that um, they came up with it in a similar vein. And then, of course, if it turned out that, oh, yeah, they like Spectacular, that'd be even better. But I don't know that, you know, I, uh, one can dream, I suppose, but I, you know, I don't actually know if uh, there's some big spectacular fan involved in the making of the live-action movies. Um, but uh, it's sort of cool that even if all it is is uh, them using the same process and reaching the same conclusion, it's still sort of a cool thing. Yeah, well, they're using uh, Harry Osborn as the Goblin first. Maybe they only watch season one. Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't even know if that's true. I mean, I've seen the preview also, but, um, you know, previews can be misleading. I, I think until we actually see the movie, 
um, I wouldn't take too much for granted about how and what they're doing um, until we see it. This is also true, and um, moving on to another character, while she appeared in the last episode, Liz Allen finally speaks and has a lot, a huge part in this episode, and even watching this episode, I had no idea she would go on the journey that she did throughout the series. I had no idea she would be such an important character, let alone Pete's first girlfriend in season two. Well, again, you know, for us working on the show at the time, we were combining, I suppose you could say, a lot of different eras, but Liz was a major part of Pete's life in high school in the Lee Ditko years. And so Liz was going to be an important character for us. Um, you know, part of Pete's whole romantic confusion, which was ripe for him in high school. Now, in fact, in the Lee Ditko years, it was a Betty Liz, um, Pete triangle. Um, and for us, you know, the high school kid dating the, um, adult, was a little weird. So we played the weirdness of it for an episode or two. Um, and then sort of left Betty out of most of the romantic entanglements after that. Um, but here he hasn't, you know, he's hasn't really met Betty yet, but Liz is someone that he's known for at least a year or so. And, uh, you know, so, and she's Flash's girl, uh, from his point of view. Um, and, uh, but he manages to make a connection with her that'll wind up being important later. And we wanted to play all that stuff out in that high school setting. Um, you know, so all of that leads to introduction, introduction of Shashan and, and, uh, Mary Jane even and um and and sort of our multiple um females of interest to Pete. And one of the things I pitched on the show from day one is that, you know, Pete is a sixteen year old guy and he is madly, passionately in love with whatever girl happens to be standing in front of him at any given moment. And uh so, you know, if Liz is there filling his attention he's going to be really into Liz unless she gives him a reason not to be. Which, of course, in this episode she did, but they also have real moments of connection there because he's a decent guy and he's passionate about science. And Liz can sort of recognize that intelligence and that passion and find it appealing, particularly when she's dealing with Flash, who tends to take her for granted. And, um, and Flash is a decent guy, too, down deep. But Flash has a lot more trouble accessing that aspect of himself than Pete does. Yeah, I love the dialogue in this episode. I don't think you understand. We want your grade to go up, so um, kudos to that line, or is that Kevin Hopps' line? But um, either way, I love that. I Yeah, that was a great moment, and I think Liz and Peter have a lot of great moments. I just... The first night he tutors her and she's just texting and chatting on the phone and then he runs off and all of a sudden, that's hot. Yeah, that how how real that scene is nowadays. I mean, it happens all the time. You go out with somebody and they're constantly on their phone. It's even worse than it was even back then. So Don't, it, it has a lot of... Don't talk about me like that. I mean, please. 
sitting right well, here. I, I know, Jen, and I'm All sorry. Right. You know, but last time, last time, you know, you were just on your phone. <laughs> you know, texting away at Greg, who was right across the table. I mean, it was it was awful. Well, and you know, I mean, one of the interesting things about doing spectacular is you look at the Lee Ditko stuff and and the Lee Ramita stuff, and and so much of it is not dated. But the one hugely significant change, you know, you can talk about computers and you can talk about all sorts of stuff, but all that is just a sort of evolution, you know. In other words, no, we're not dealing with big, huge, you know reel-to-reel tape anymore, but we're dealing with flash drives, but it, it's still just a an evolution. The big sea change in modern society is the cell phone. You know, that's... And so incorporating cell phones into, you know, the 1960s world of Spider-Man was one of our biggest challenges, but ended up also being one of the most rewarding aspects of of contemporizing that old canon um, because, uh, you know, Spidey works with cell phones. It, 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 you know, Spidey was a cutting edge character at the time. It's not hard to keep him on that cutting edge, but it was definitely something that we had to give a lot of thought to in in multiple ways, incorporating it. And, and then, you know, you try and just play characters real, which is that, you know, as long as she views Pete as simply this sort of pushover, someone she has no respect for, she has no interest in him. Um, but the moment he sort of says, look, I'm not going to be that guy. I'm not going to put up with this shit. Call me if you really want to learn. Suddenly, she has respect for him. And once she has respect for him, she can look at him in a different light and realize, you know, this guy's not bad looking and he's not and he's smart and he's cares about shit and you know uh and suddenly he becomes actually attractive to her and none of that happens until he sort of stands up for himself enough i I don't want it to be about him blowing her off that's what she found attractive but i think what it is is that it's about establishing that he's a person who deserves respect um, and I do think that is what suddenly made him more attractive to her. And I think what's interesting is that, for example, with the nicknames, we tried to, you know, how a character referred to Peter Parker had a lot to do with what their relationship was, whether um, or Spider-Man 2, for that matter. But, you know, so she starts out calling him Petey as this sort of contemptuous, thing. And then Petey really becomes a term of endearment for her um, and for him. Um, I don't think he ever really loved being called Petey, but he got that for ultimately for Liz that was a term of endearment and so he accepted it. We tried to think about all this stuff. Well, mission accomplished. Every character had a nickname for him. I mean, Rhino called him the Webhead. I mean... Everybody seemed to have their own <laughs> differing relationship with him. I mean, in the current comics, the Goblin calls Spider-Man Bug all the time, and it just drives me nuts because I just don't think that's something that he would say. <laughs> yeah, and speaking of nicknames, I mean, Spider-Man's the one that first call, uh, calls him Elec- calls Electro Electro, which was cool. 
I like that you came up with that. I mean, how we named our villains was as important as how we created them, you know. So, uh, in essence, Vulture names himself, but he's doing it based on misremembering what Norman says in the first episode. Um, But Electro, uh, you know, came, I guess... You could say he came very close to being called Lightning Butt, but um, <laughs> I love that bit. I love it. Uh, but you know, uh, the notion of someone just starting out of nowhere saying "I'm Electro" is tougher for us, but it's easier when uh, you know Motormouth Spider-Man is rattling off goofy names for this guy, and one of them, you know, Max finds kind of appealing, which is the Electro name, particularly when he doesn't want to self-identify as Max anymore. Um, and so all that was fun. And then, you know, uh, uh, talking about all these sort of writerly things, and and really, though, the thing that should get the most credit is the work that Vic and his team did on this episode, because... They just came up with all these great ways, even in Electro's very first appearance, for him to use his powers. It's more than just throwing a lightning bolt here, throwing a lightning bolt there. Um, Just some great stuff. I mean, Electro rocketing into the sky, sort of riding that lightning. um, I always thought that is cool, you know. And as always with the show, Dick and his team... Um, found ways just to make our characters move in a way that I don't think you'd seen a lot of in animation before, which is ironic, but I just think that the way Spider-Man moves in this show and then the way the villains move to go after him is so fresh and so exciting and, and really makes the series what it is. Yeah, and I also love all the little touches, like the itsy-bitsy <laughs> ringtone. Yeah, I mean, we're trying to follow through on everything as it makes sense. You know, this idea of, on the one hand, May respecting Peter and and having trust in him and faith in him and knowing he's a good kid, but still feeling like, look, I'm the parent here, and we're going to set some rules, and you've got to stick by those rules. And so you've got to call in, and if you don't, I'll be calling you, and I'll expect you home at certain time unless you called that kind of thing and some of that literally comes out of my relationship with my parents I mean I was a good kid I you know and my parents trusted me um but you know there were rules and the rule was if I mean for me the rule was if I wasn't home by midnight I had to call it was okay for me to be out later than that but I had to call um now I suggested that I remember early on I suggested that rule and I think it was Craig Kyle at Marvel who's like midnight kid's 16 he can't be out till midnight um and uh I thought Mike you know I thought okay well we'll we'll say 10 (laughs) how about 10 o'clock he's like okay yeah 10 o'clock um and I it made me think that maybe my parents were just extremely irresponsible because they were fine at midnight (laughs) (laughs) They left you home alone for weekends. <laughs> Parents don't do that normally. Not on purpose. 
<laughs> yeah. And how many parties did you throw is the question. I never did. I never did that. I was a real, I felt oh. like I was the, the dullest, you know, good kid. It just it never even crossed my mind to do that. Um, I think among other things, I'd seen enough movies where that was always a disaster. <laughs> and I didn't clean up or anything like that, so it never crossed my mind to do that. I was, you know, I had younger sister, younger brother. I was very responsible. So, and and you know, if your audience wants to say, "Wow, he was boring," um, I'll cop to that too. Um, but yeah, my uh, we got left alone a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> from a very young age. <laughs> my, literally, my first memory is um, me at age four and my sister at age two. My mom went into labor with my brother, who was who's four years younger than me, and uh, and my dad, you know, put her in the car and drove off and left the two of us at home. And he had called the neighbor to come stay with us, but he was so sort of nervous and wanting to get my mom to the hospital. He didn't actually wait for the neighbor to come. So he left his four and two year old alone in the house until the neighbor showed up and as he drove off with my mom and she was going into labor. So that probably set the tone for, you know, my entire life. Um, <laughs> um, so getting back to Spider-Man, we we shifted based on uh, Craig's advice. We shifted that curfew from midnight down to ten, and it seemed to work much better. <laughs> um, <laughs> and they yeah. wanted to hear from him by ten, since it's even kind of hard to buy Aunt May staying up till midnight. Um, so, and I just love that Spidey has to make two phone calls to her while fighting Electro. This is the sort of thing that can only happen to him. Yeah, and again, you know, that's that's the whole thing. You know, you sit there and you go, "Oh my God, how are we going to incorporate cell phones into the action and into the life of Spider-Man? Won't this just totally get in the way all the time that he's got a cell phone?" And in fact, no, it winds up being this great tool for humor, for action, for all sorts of things. And um, and I think that really shows the kind of universality of what. Stan and Steve were doing that we can take these kind of stories, really put them in a contemporary context, and you lose nothing. In fact, it works perfectly. Yeah. And uh, another character who makes an appearance in this episode, a character who hasn't been around in the comics since long before I was born, Dr. Bromwell. Uh, yeah, I mean, we had... Uh, you know, again, part of it is I'm just really old. So, but I remember <laughs> Doc Bromwell, oh, no. and, and um, he was fun. And, you know, we had long-term plans for Doc Bromwell. He clearly, I mean, this doesn't really come out in this episode because he doesn't meet her yet. But, you know, Doc Bromwell is the emergency room physician. Um, you know, is winds up getting a big crush on Aunt May and... Um, we were going to play that out a bit more, see where that took us. Um, yeah. But uh, and and you know, Doc is great because Dorian Harewood is a great voice for him, and um, and this also allowed us. Um, you know, Doc Bromwell has a very small part, but you know what it does allow us is to get deeper into 
um, the Connors, Curtis and Martha Connors, and our versions of those two characters. And excuse me, and um, and really that allow us to build towards what we were where we were going in in the next episode, which I know we'll talk about next time. But uh, um, you know, it was an important step. You know, we established in episode one that Kurt was uh, shooting up with some kind of strange green drug. <laughs> and, um, and here we see that again, but we also see that um, that Electro actually has catalyzed that potion. Um, not on purpose, but just in the course of the action, that potion gets catalyzed. And, and yet, um, Kurt will still wind up um, taking that hypo, um, and uh, which you know is obviously going to change his life in a major way in yeah. episode three. And we'll come back again in uh, season two, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> it's hard not to because everything was so intentionally interconnected. You know, it, it's tough to talk about one episode totally in a vacuum because it was designed that, okay, this is a great, fun Electro adventure, but we were always playing off stuff that had come before. In this case, before is only one episode, but also playing towards things that we knew would follow. And that was the nature of the show on purpose. So it's not surprising that, you know, every time we talk about stuff we're constantly sort of jumping the gun on what we'll discuss next week or the week after. And it's one of my favorite aspects of the show, just how I believed this world. It felt like this could be happening somewhere. Yeah, this show is one of, uh, of Spider-Man shows. This, this show and the 90s show really were the first to kind of have a true continuity weaving in and out of uh, having little subplots that weaved in and out of episodes instead of it being just a um, standalone set of stories, whereas it, this show did it even better than the '90s show of of being standalone but building towards a greater mythology. So, um, yeah, I, I, that's like I agree with Greg. I, I that's one of the things I love about the show is that it's always building, and there's little teases and little bits of foreshadowing. You know, there's the the uh, there's some very obvious foreshadowing. Once you know what's coming up, up next episode, you're like, oh, okay. So that's that's one of the cool things about going back now and looking at the show even years later and seeing all these little touches that you guys put in visually to kind of uh, wink and a nod for the, next, for the next episode or for a couple episodes down the line. Yeah, and all of that was planned out way in advance. I, you know, um, had the big bulletin board with the multicolored index cards, which I do for everything. I'm a creature of habit, but, uh, you know, one of the reasons to have that bulletin board and, and all that is so that we can plan that kind of thing. We can figure out what type we need to lay, what hints we want to do, what foreshadowing, um, what, you know, we want to do to remind the audience of beats that we've already established, but we're like, you know, this is important, so we're going to reinforce it here. All that stuff was up on the board, or at least nearly all of it was, so that we could keep track of it and make sure it all got in there. And, you know, it leaves us room to 
discover things as we go, and we were, you know, if we found something that was working, we were quick to start adding that in as well. But uh, it was always good to to have that, you know, master plan up there on the on the corkboard. To this day, I will, I will always wonder what would have come next. I saw your interview for the Marvel Animation Agent, who emphasized who had very big plans for Hobgoblin, which laments the fact that I didn't, we didn't get a third season, because Hobgoblin's one of my favorites, but uh, we'll discuss him more when we get to Roderick Kingsley. Cool. And, um, let's see, I, Zach, do you have any, any other questions? I think you stole half mine, but yeah, I'm good. <laughs> and, uh, Jen, um, any behind-the-scenes an- anecdotes during post-production for this episode that you'd like to share? Uh, not that I could think of off the top of my head, honestly. I was blanking out. I'm just here to look cute, okay? <laughs> I'm here to class up, you, you, I'm classing up the joint for you guys. Yeah, well you, well, you definitely do that, but you you contributed well. I mean, we love having you on here. And, and yes, you've gotten feedback. Yes. People love listening to you. Uh, uh, one thing I do have to say for the voice actors on this episode, I didn't, I've never liked Eddie Brock, but between the way the, the group created this version of Eddie and Ben Diskin doing the voice, I freaking, I fell in love with Eddie Brock and that's the first time for, for that ever. So. Yeah. I mean, we wanted Eddie to be a sympathetic character who starts to turn dark as the series per as the season progressed and um and Ben sort of was able to really capture that. I mean, Venom was one of the characters that we held auditions for, as opposed to for example, Electro we did not hold auditions for. We just cast Crispin in the role. But, you know, for the role of Venom, that was an important enough role to Marvel certainly that um we held auditions so, you know, in order to get the role of Venom he had to do both his Eddie Brock voice and his Venom voice. And I think, you know, we were unanimous about choosing Ben for that part. And uh, um, he just did a great job at taking Eddie from this, you know, pretty sympathetic, you know, sort of older brother figure to uh, Peter to being one of his, you know, you know, greatest enemies, um, emotionally even. So, uh, it was a great ride and Ben does a great job and Ben is pretty, uh, uh well, Eddie is pretty heroic in this episode. A little yeah. crazy heroic, which is what we were trying to show, which was that Eddie took sort of ridiculous risks. Um, that Eddie was a little in love with death. Um, I don't know how well that came off. I didn't expect people to get it necessarily in this episode. I was hoping they'd get it by the time uh, we got towards the end of the season. But, you know, that whole idea of Eddie having lost his parents in the same plane crash that Pete lost his parents in, um, and that for Pete it had made him be someone who valued life, and for Eddie it made him be a little fascinated, a little in love with death, so that he's a 
he, he's a risk taker in a kind of negative sense, you know. Um, and we tried to at least in this episode and the next one, which again we'll talk about, but plant a seed of that where Eddie takes chances that are um, a little crazy um, because there's a piece of him that has a little bit of a death wish uh, in there. And again, I have to agree with Jen that Ben just does an amazing job. Yeah, wait, uh, wait till we get to the Venom episodes, and then it's double amazing. Yeah, we're going <laughs> to have a lot to say there. Venom is one of the most controversial characters in Spider fandom. <laughs> yeah, he's he's one of those that there's a lot of people that love him, and then there's a lot of people that can't stand him. And I'll say this: I, I, you mentioned this, Greg, about him being kind of a mirror, a darker mirror image. And visually speaking, it seems like oh, Venom's always been like that, but not necessarily characterization-wise as we've seen that. And it's really nice to see that through this series, you we you start to plant those seeds of him being both in and out of the costume, a darker image of Peter Parker. Yeah. Starting. Yeah, and again, all that was very intentional. You know, you know, if you look at the original version of Eddie Brock. Um. His connection to Spider-Man, I mean, forget Pete, but even his connection to Spider-Man is very tenuous. And so mm-hmm. we, wanted, we wanted to try and create an origin for him that, that justified him being such a dark opposite to Spider-Man. So that was why we made him, you know, more or less a contemporary Pete. He's, a, you know, a couple years older. Um, and, uh, but, you know, that they basically grew up together like brothers. They, uh, they lost their parents at the same time. And, and then, you know, you have a sort of, uh, saving grace for Pete is that he had Ben and May and Eddie didn't have that. Um, and so there's a darkness in Eddie, but, it's coming from the same place. It's just how these two very different kids chose to survive the death of their parents is very different. So that sort of dark opposition was very much intentional um, to try and bring an origin for Venom and Eddie Brock that that seemed to justify what Venom ultimately becomes for Spider-Man. Um Whereas the origin, as presented in the original comics, you're sort of like, really? That's that's why. Um, and <laughs> yeah, he kind of comes, which is exactly yeah, why I, mean, I never liked Venom to start with. Same. You know, speaking of Venom, uh, Stan Carter got his first uh, line in this episode too. I was asked, I was ch- chatting back and forth with with uh, Greg Bichansky about. It's like, is this the first time we see him? Because he, he t- tells, uh, tries to get the lector to come down to the station and. And I'm like, oh, Stan Carter. Yeah, I know that guy. <laughs> here. Yeah, I mean, we wanted to populate our world, and we wanted to populate the world with interesting characters, characters that would um, make, you know, people who didn't know Spider-Man, all, you know, all the ins and outs of his universe. You know, if you meet Doc Bromwell and you aren't familiar with, you know, 
all the back issues of Spider-Man. He's just the emergency room doctor. If you meet Stan Carter and you're not familiar with this, he's just the, a cop, you know. But what we yeah. wanted to do is make sure that all those characters, as much as possible, were named characters from the canon. And all of them have the potential to be a lot more interesting. So that, you know, we had some plans for Stan, um, but whether they would be exactly what was in the comics or not, I'm not going to get into. But, you know, we wanted to show that um, though Stan is, I suppose, well-meaning, he's also winds up being part of the problem as far as, uh, you know, Max Electro is concerned. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, that became, you know, and that became again, part of our modus operandi throughout, you know, we're going to have two cops. Let's not make them generic. Let's make one of them Gene DeWolf. Let's make one of them Stan Carter. Um, and we know where they're, we have at least a clue of where they might go down the road. Um, no guarantees, but at least, you know, um, to pay attention to these two, because even though right now their roles seem very functional, and it was also very interesting to make Stan basically sort of more sympathetic to Spider-Man and Gene, um, more hostile to the notion of a vigilante. Mm -hmm. Especially considering where Gene ends up. Yeah. I think she was in, in, well, yeah, Gene. She was in love with Spider-Man in the comics. It's been a while since I've yeah. read those. Yeah, it was, it was established after she died that she had a thing for Spider-Man. She was attracted to him. And then uh, Greg and I have talked about this on and off, but we've, I think, uh, Joe Wade, the FBI agent, I don't, he doesn't appear in this episode, but I was like, really, Joe Wade? <laughs> yeah, 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 Agent Wade's not a well-beloved character in Spider-Can. <laughs> I'm a Clone Saga fan, so yeah, he appeared back then. Yeah, we're, we'll get to sheer strength in about a year. <laughs> I know, I'll talk about him then. <laughs> so... But, um, yeah, I think we've pretty much covered this, and uh, do either of you have anything you'd like to plug? Uh, yeah, I do. I mean, as always, um, ad nauseum, I'm sure, I, I definitely want to plug my books. Uh, I've, there's Reign of the Ghosts, which is out now. Uh, you can order it on Amazon. You can buy it at bookstores. If you go into a bookstore and they don't have a copy on the shelf, you can order it from any bookstore. Um, and that's my first novel. It's out now. The second book in the, si the same series, Spirits of Ash and Foam, is out July 8th. You can pre-order it now, and I would very much appreciate it if you did. <laughs> um, and by the way, if you do read the books, your uh, listeners out there, if you read the books, you like them, please go on Amazon and write reviews. You know, it, we need to sort of raise the profile of these books for me to get the chance to write books three through nine uh, of this series. And then the other thing I'd like to plug is I will be at WonderCon this weekend, Saturday, uh, April 19th at 11.30 a.m. We are doing uh, Ask Greg Live. Um, and uh, so it'll be like a Young Justice meetup. We invite cosplayers. People have questions. Um, I'm not big on giving out spoilers, as most of you know, but... Uh, I am way more likely to give a spoiler out live and in person than I am uh, over the Internet. 
Um, I'm almost, it's almost impossible to get me to spoil something over the internet. It's a lot easier in person. Doesn't mean I will, but it He uh, likes to see the pain on your face. <laughs> well, I... Yeah, um, I don't know if we'll have this episode out in time for Saturday, but um, I, 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 you know what, I will, I will, I will work on it. All right. Well, if, have, it, yeah. if it if it gets out there, I will be there 11:30 a.m. and the uh, it's a sort of informal get together. Again, we're celebrating Gargoyle's 20th anniversary this year. Young Justice, Spectacular Spider-Man. Um, you know, anything along those lines. Vanessa Marshall is going to be there, the voice of uh, Mary Jane Watson and Black Canary, and currently the voice of Hera on Star Wars Rebels, um, and uh, Nicole Dubuque, who wrote for both Spider-Man and Young Justice and Rescue Bots and many other great shows, is going to be there, uh, and maybe a few other special surprise guests will show up. Um, but, so think about coming to that. I'll also be bringing copies of Brain of the Ghosts as well as some of the original development art so you can purchase the book and get signatures and get the development art along with it. If you buy a book, you get the development art for free. Um, and uh, and I'll also sign, you know, pretty much anything. Uh, he will. He really will. Stick in front of me. And, yeah, I've uh, seen it. So Body parts? I've seen that too. Out. From about one to three, I'll be signing at the Love and Capes table in Artist Alley. So uh, uh, Tom Zoller, who does Love and Capes, has been kind enough to uh, allow me to sit in with him for a couple hours. Uh, and Love and Capes, by the way, is a great, great book that everyone should be reading also but because uh, it's hilarious and really fun and great work. But... Uh, so if this gets out in time, come to WonderCon on Saturday. Come say hi. Come to the, the Young Justice Ask Greg Live, Gargoyle's 20th Anniversary, Spectacular Spider-Man meetup, and then come to the signing afterwards. I'm on the wrong coast, but I will be seeing you at Convergence in July. I'm in the middle of the country, and I still can't go to WonderCon this weekend, <laughs> so I'm very sad. I might have a way to WonderCon. I just have to see how charming I can be. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) Thumbing a ride, right? (laughs) Nice. And Jen, do you have anything you want to plug? Um, Actually, I do. Um, Right now, the uh, comic anthology that I have a story in is on Kickstarter. It is called Smut Peddler. It's the 2014 edition. This is the second large one that they've done. Um, It's all... uh, lady-centric, sex-positive, woman-made erotica. So every story in the book is got a woman on either the writing or, or art or both. Um, uh, it's all comics written and done by women, basically for women. But uh, there's a wide variety, great artists. Um, there's comics by Jess Fink, Trudy Cooper, Kate Leth, um, Lynn Vissel, I mean, there's some great artists in here. Um, uh, so there's over 20 stories, uh, over 30 artists. Kickstarter is uh, halfway done, and we've met our goal, but everything else that we get uh, over the top on the Kickstarter goes directly to the artists and writers. 
Um, I'm really excited for our story, um, planning to uh, launch a webcomic with it and uh, me and my partner, Gilly Hathaway. Um, so if you want to go support us, um, Smut Peddler 2014 on Kickstarter, that would be wonderful. Excellent, excellent. And speaking of plug-in, for those of you listening, we're less than a week away from Spectacular Spider-Man's Blu-ray finally coming out. So, Woohoo! So pick it up if you haven't already by the time you listen to this. There will be a link up on uh, both Spidey-Dude.com and Spider-ManCrawlSpace.com to the Amazon. Uh, if you haven't pre-ordered it already, why haven't you? If you're listening to the show, why have you not pre-ordered that? Um... And it is also available probably at any and all. Uh, there are video stores out there. I know that that seems like nowadays with Blockbuster being gone. But, uh, uh, you know, anywhere you can pick up, uh, even at Walmart or whatever. Best Buy. Best Buy, Walmart, stuff like that. So, yeah, definitely pick it up. And listen to this show after you watch each episode. See? See? Yeah. Cool. It all connects back together. The circle yeah. of life. Circle of life, yeah. All right, I would like to thank you both for joining us, and hopefully we'll see you yes. both next month. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot, guys. All right, that's the episode. So uh, we thank you for listening, and uh, want to give a shout-out again to Greg Wiseman and Jennifer L. Anderson for being a part of the show again this episode. We'll see them hopefully in May when we get the uh, third episode of spectacular spider-man cartoon out but uh, next episode we're gonna have the fan panel with myself gerard delatour and greg bishansky and jesse garrett so uh, stay tuned for that but uh, we'll see you next time here on spectacular radio a spidey-dude.com production I'm not sure you understand. We want your grade to go up.